Hello, this is episode 267 and in it, I'm continuing my conversation with Yoast Backer and we're learning more about his future food system and his approach to building and living without waste. Now, if you haven't listened to episode 266 and part one of this conversation, I really recommend that you head back and do that first uh, because this episode will make a lot more sense if you do. So you can do that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 266 and you can listen or download the free PDF transcript. Now, in this episode, we're talking more about the nuts and bolts of some of the materials and the construction of Future Food System, particularly reviewing the floor and the wall systems and the choice of products and materials to meet Yoast's criteria of recyclability and biodegradability at end of life. And at the end of this conversation, actually, Yoast, he gave us a walk around. So he took me, uh, he was doing a Zoom call on his phone and he took me around his house uh, to actually explain some of the design decisions that he makes and suggests uh, for your project as well. So if you'd like to see that video or you want to grab a full transcript of this episode, you can uh, also get the information. So I've got collect together, to collected together lots of the links of um, some of the products that he discussed and the, uh, the ones that he particularly uses and refers to. Then you can find all of that by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 267. That's the numbers 267. Now let's dive in. I begin by acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, and I recognise the continuing connection to lands, waters, skies and communities. I pay my respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and to elders both past and present. If we haven't met before, I'm Amelia Lee. Based in Northern New South Wales, Australia, I'm a wife, mum and architect, and I've worked in the architectural industry for over 27 years now. Having worked on over 250 projects, mainly residential family homes, as well as significantly renovating three homes of my own with my hubby, whilst our three kids were babies, toddlers and even older, I have a personal and professional understanding of the joy, challenges, stresses and excitement of making your family home a reality. In mid-2014, I started Undercover Architect, and it's an online business to help and teach homeowners like you how to get it right when designing, building and renovating your family home. Undercover Architect is all about giving you access to the industry knowledge and insights you need to avoid the mistakes and dramas that can cost you thousands, tens of thousands and even hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's about levelling the playing field so that the world of renovating and building doesn't seem so mysterious and you can be the active driver in your project, navigating it with know-how and confidence. Undercover Architect helps and teaches homeowners through this podcast, the website and our online courses and programs, including my flagship program, Home Method. I truly believe that when you know the questions to ask, the steps to take and the best way to create a home that works, feels great and that you feel great in, you can enjoy the process of building and renovating, as well as the home that you move into at the end of this ambitious journey. Consider Undercover Architect your secret ally, whoever you're working with and whatever your location, your budget or your dreams. Grab access to my free online workshop, Your Project Plan, and learn super helpful information to save time, money and stress in your reno or new build. You can find it at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash project plan. That's P-R-O-J-E-C-T-P-L-A-N. Now, let's get on to the episode. In episode 266, I gave some background about Yoast's career. And so make sure you have a listen to that if you haven't, if you want to learn more about Yoast and where he's come from. As a refresher, though, Yoast 
he, he describes himself as a florist and an artist and as he actually says, he creates stuff. In part one, he shared with me how in his own personal search to create a low-tox, sustainable and zero-waste home for his own family, he dived into the world of building. And since then, he's gone on to create a range of hospitality and residential projects, both temporary and permanent, that really test and demonstrate zero-waste construction, zero-waste use and zero-waste living. Now, Yost's work, it is all about innovation and invention and shaping the future that he believes in. However, he is also the first to say that he hopes that these projects seed others. He speaks of the analogy of a dandelion, the way that you blow on a dandelion and the seeds just dissipate and, and float out into the wind and you never really know where they end up. And he's, his own experiments, they really do act as opportunities for other to, others to take his ideas and run. And the beautiful thing is that he, uh, you know, I've seen him get feedback from others uh, saying that because they heard of a talk that they've gone on and done something you know and putting something into action and it's why he does his work as open source as well and he lets he really lets us in closely to the what and the how so that we can then see how we can execute this in our own lives and the projects that we're undertaking now I left off part one of my conversation with Yoast where we were discussing his belief in agroforestry as a huge opportunity for Australia to actually create a, a properly sustainable timber industry that's very different from the one that we have today and so I kick off part two by asking you Yoast, how homeowners can actually tap into having the right kind of teamwork and pulling the right kind of team around them uh, to realise these types of alternative approaches in their own home project because I think that's so critical for you being able to uh, put some of these things into action for your own renovation or new build. So we talk about that and then Yoast generously shares a lot of the detail around specific materials and construction methods in, that are used in the future food system and also his own testing and, sper- and experimentation that's led to this project. Now remember you can grab a free PDF download of this episode and uh, all of the links and resources plus that video walkthrough of Yoast's own home at the end uh, by heading to undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 267. It's one of these things that for for the average homeowner who's then working with a builder to then say, look, I, you know, the timber that I want to use has to come from these various sources. Um, And then the builder having an appetite for uh, it being a different pathway to obviously calling up their timber supplier and just ordering things over the counter. Um, There's, it's, it's one of those things. I think it, it is reliant on the individual homeowner to pursue this and to find the right team around them. I, uh, you seem to be amazing at pulling teams together to, to get this, uh, you know, just seeing the shared passion that there was to make future food system happen through COVID, through all of the challenges that you had. Do you have any recommendations for people about, you know, how you go about finding the right team members that will get on board this adventure with you, you know, that will actually help, you know, because I hear so often from homeowners, they want to create a sustainable home. They just get told by a builder, it's going to be more expensive. It's going to be more difficult. It's going to take you longer. And they know that they have to almost put on a suit of armor to go in to bat for their home. How, how do you, you know, cause I'd imagine you've met opposition after opposition as you've moved through this journey. What are your recommendations for people to think about as they navigate this for themselves? Well, I mean, I'm not alone in in this. I think that there's a sense that, and from builders as well, I know a lot of builders that want to that want to change the way houses get built and are looking to do things sustainably. So for me, I it, it all starts with communicating. You know, like you walk into a shop and say, "How are you? How how are you going?" You know, but no one actually really is interested in the answer. You know, maybe 
again, like one of my favorite things about the film is it shows the brilliant people that are in and around our community. And this house was almost completely made. The windows were welded by a local guy who doesn't make, you know, the, he fixes pumps. And it's just a conversation with people. And you find your, you find your, you find your tribe, you find your community and like-minded people. And that's the thing I recommend. And, you know, what I say to people, if you want to be an architect, start, you know, working one day a week for a builder, even if it's free, start going into a demolition yard to work out how building materials get a deep understanding and deep knowledge of, of what it is that you do and what it is you're about to design is really important and critical. And it's all about communicating and you'll be surprised how quickly you find like-minded people. And it's amazing how many people from the agroforestry point of view, I mean, I know someone here in Melbourne that you can, actually get timber that's come out of the suburbs, you know, unbelievable hundred year old cedars that are becoming too dangerous and need to be cut down. And, you know, he mills it and it goes into, you know, a, a floor or into a kitchen or there are literally hundreds of businesses that are starting, you know, trying to find a sustainable alternative to the current system. And also steel frame. You know, the Lightgate steel frame is a brilliant alternative and it was invented by an Australian. Blue Scope or BHB kind of didn't really support it. The New Zealanders embraced it in the 70s and 80s, became world leaders at it, and they weren't interested in it for any other reason than it was earthquake resistant. It was a much more resilient building, not very similar to the way an aeroplane, you know, bends and when it gets hit by lightning, when it's flying through the air. It's the same thing when you build a building out of light gauge steel, you know, yeah, there are a lot more screws and, and it's, it's, it's really accurate. It's light. It's incredibly strong. So over a 20 year period, they developed all of these incredible technologies, you know, roll formers that were inexpensive. And so suddenly you had in a place like New Zealand, thousands of people rolling out steel frames. And now, you know, when I built the greenhouse in, in, in uh, 2008, I think it was only 12% or 13% of houses had steel frames. And it's really taken off. But it's taken off now because of the lack of timber, the quality of the timber, you know, the trees growing so fast that the timber, you know, you almost when you cut the steel tape around a pack of timber, you've got to stand back as they almost explode out because the timber just wants to curve it, you know, and you just see... You know, the, the chippy is looking at the timber and like three get thrown to the side before they find a good one that they can use. It's like, this is crazy. It's crazy. Well, that whole package has been delivered to site. But because we, you know, and, and everyone just accepts it now because there's such a shortage that you'll just put up with it. So I think we need to yeah, look at, at the... Yeah, I think when you when you work with steel, it's initially it yeah. It, I know builders that hate it, but then ultimately when they work with me for a few times, I go, yeah, you're right. This is a better approach. And the thing about it is that if you use technology like what the New Zealanders have really, um, and now the Tur in Turkey, the Turkish houses are using that New Zealand technology again because of earthquakes. Um, in Italy, Abruzzo, places like that, it's becoming really popular. But you've got no waste because the whole house is designed in a computer. You know exactly you need 36,500 screws. You don't, you know, and it, it pre-punches the hole. 
So it's not like every second screw gets thrown out. Every screw is used because you're not burning screws out or you're not, it's, it's like pre-punched. There's a dimple. So when you're plastering your walls, you don't have a curve. It's numbered. It's, it's, it's printed on the material where it, what it is, where it needs to go. And the coils are a thousand or a kilometer long. So the only waste you will have is at the end of that coil where you might have a two meter bit because, you know, you've got, let's say you do a truss, it says bottom cord one, top cord two, and then it's got all the webs and the numbers, all the webs. And so you can't really fuck it up. You know, it's impossible to stuff up. And so once you work with it, you just go, wow, this is so accurate. It's two to millimeter and it's so strong and it's so light and it's so much easier to work with and there's no waste on site. And best of all, you don't have to worry about termites. How do you deal with thermal bridging in the wall? Because I, I can imagine when you're using the light gauge steel on like your own home and you've got that T-section with the straw that drops in, that's dealing with a lot of that. In Future Food System, obviously, you had the structural, you had a steel frame in terms of the, the structural boxes that came in and you were wrapping that. What was the wall makeup in Future Food System and how did you deal with thermal bridging? Because I know you had thermally um, separated glazing and those kinds of things. It was obviously on your radar. We're talking a lot in the undercover Arctic community about preventing condensation in walls and um, making sure that the home is vapor permeable when it needs to be and those kinds of things. So what was your thoughts around constructing in that regard? Yeah, so with Future Food System, I just had the steel frame external and then we used a, a magnesium oxide board uh, that gave us our, our um, mold-resistant, fire-resistant skin, Durapanel, and then we had a 35 mil gap, which we didn't put insulation in because it, I, I believe that the air would work as effectively, and then we had another layer of Durapanel. So it was, you know, probably overkill, to be honest. Everyone that walked into the house felt like they were walking into a bunker. You know, it was very, very well insulated. And then we made the force the steel frame window line up with that cavity. So the outside, the way that the, the steel Forster are the only, the only uh, thermally broken steel frame windows in the world that can be completely recycled. So they're hundred percent steel frame. They've got an incredibly clever system where the outside it's imagine like 75 mil by 50 mil square tube, but the outside 25 mil is connected to the inside 25 mil by a web. And that web stops the transfer of heat and cold. So it's designed really for minus 40 in Switzerland and Austria and places like that. But of course it works just as well in the heat. And I've got a really interesting story because we used it for the fire test in 2012 when I did the bushfire test with the CSIRO. And uh, because of the, my uh, approach is open source. So the CSIRO were able to go live on Facebook and Twitter with this fire test because there was no IP, it was open source. So everybody could watch it and learn from it. And um, we, oh, I didn't, but CSIRO tagged the company, Forza, in Switzerland. And uh, we got a call. You've got to pull that door out. We don't want our door in that test. And we were, why? Oh, well, because it's not designed for bushfire. It's designed for extreme cold. And it's like, well, you know, we paid for the door. So it wasn't a sponsored thing. And the, they couldn't force us to take it out. And we were about to, you know, we had like, four fire trucks and 30 firefighters and we're about to do this, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollar test. There's no way known we were going to compromise and stop all that. We had the ABC there and everything. So we did the test. Anyway, it's called a test of failure and every other test that's ever been done. And since the house fails, so it's to see where the house fails, 
where the weakest link is. And we thought ours would fail too, like every other test. And we're about 40 minutes into the test. So it starts at 100 degrees and goes to the last three minutes are 1,000 degrees. They use 4,000 liters of gas to create a full flame. And they wait for the wind to get to a high enough speed to emulate and simulate a, a wildfire. And the scientists are saying there's something wrong because there's no temperature rise inside. But we couldn't see what was going on. The camera inside wasn't working anymore because um, what we couldn't see because the glass was going, you know, lets off a, a, a white so you couldn't see the flame. Then the, the flame went down and we went, hang on, this is, the door's intact. Wow. And it went 24 to 28 degrees inside, yet it was 1,000 degrees outside for the last three minutes. So the it, scientists were all going crazy and clapping and going, wow, you know, this, we've, done, we've tested a building that, and, you know, suddenly within three weeks it was on their website saying, oh, we've done this, we've designed this door. <laughs> <laughs> you know? But it's really interesting that that, door was obviously you know we couldn't we had to replace the door obviously but it, it kept the fire out and kept stop oxygen from going through and so yeah it's really important that you are obviously site that door uh with the out external layer and the internal layer so that's in line with that really the 35 mil cavity does that make sense it does yeah, yeah. gotcha so um, the magnesium oxide really interests me because yeah, I've watched the, and I'll pop it in the resources for this episode, the footage of that fire test and just how extraordinarily it's like the whole building, just how well it sustained what it was being subjected to. You use magnesium oxide, as you said, in the walls, I believe you also put it in the floors of future food yep. system. Yep. Um, can you Nat tell us about, sorry. It's naturally mold resistant. So it's really good for, um, floors, especially. Can you tell us more about magnesium oxide? Because from what I understood, um, it's not readily available in Australia and it's something that you're a big it's fan really of. Because it's a material that has been sold by cowboys. It can easily be um, um, made ineffectively. And there's a lot of poor, poor magnesium oxide board, which has really destroyed its reputation. But it goes back to when I built my house, I needed... The council gave me approval, but they said I needed approval from a bushfire expert to make sure that the straw, but we're in a high fire zone here. Ash Wednesday 82 was really bad around here. And so I needed a bushfire expert. I Googled, I was before Google, I found out that Justin Leonard was an expert, a worldwide, world famous, regarded, highly regarded bushfire expert. So I called his number. He never called me back again and again, week after week. And eventually I just put all my drawings for the house in an envelope and sent them to him and wrote a letter to him. And then two days or three days later, I got a phone call from him. I'm Justin Leonard. I've just received your drawings. You've designed an incredibly bushfire resistant house. Do you know, do you realize that? I said, no, I've just designed a house to be my home. You know, I hadn't even considered bushfire. And, um, that started a friendship and ultimately led to that fire test. And he became obsessed with the way that I design and build, you know? And, um, but that day he said, if you added magnesium oxide board to the outside of your building, you would have the most fire resistant building on earth. And I'm going, well, what's magnesium oxide? So I, you know, me being me just dug deep, couldn't find anybody. I know that we used to make it in Australia, 
But um, it's in, you know, the Romans used it. It's in the Great Wall of China. They used to line the inside of, of ovens with it because it's so fire resistant. It's a very, I mean, it was all mined and used in Europe. That's why it's no longer used. Um, China and Australia have huge deposits of magnesium oxide. But the, what I love about it is you can't get silicosis from it. So when you work with it, it's magnesium. So, you know, the guys always say that they feel really good. <laughs> you know, like Matt wouldn't refuse to wear a mask you know, when he was cutting it because he reckons that he always had cramps, but when he was working with me, he never had cramps and he, he thought it was because of the board, which makes sense. Cause it's, um, but the, yeah. So I ended up going to China and to factories that make it and became obsessed with it. And the thing was, I couldn't work out whether it was recyclable. And I went to a factory in Ningbo. I, I actually pyrolysized 60 kilos with, with uh, Russell Burnett. This is back in 2010. Turned 60 kilos of olive pips into charcoal and took them with me to China. I went to Ningbo. I went to a factory where I'd been. And I wanted to embed the, 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 the to replace sawdust. So they use 5% sawdust normally. I wanted to replace the sawdust with biochar because then I believed that the walls would absorb pollution for eternity. Because one gram of uh, olive pips is equivalent to 5,000 square meters of, of surface area. I wanted to put 60 kilos into the Sydney greenhouse, you know, so the building would constantly absorb benzene and formaldehyde, all these airborne pollutions that are causing us harm. Anyway, that's another story. But I said, is the material recyclable? No, 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 not recyclable. Oh, it's really got me worried because my their English was terrible. And I just, so I was in the plant watching the, you know, the reason why it's got such a low carbon footprint is because you just pour it into a sheet and then it cures at room temperature. There's no, on the other side was the same company owned a um, fiber cement factory. Well, the energy that into, in that factory on the other side of the road was amazing. You know, that's made at 1600 degrees, you know, anyway, the next day I'm there and I'm watching them and they're cutting sheets down for a special order and all the offcuts are going into a, like a trolley. And then I followed the trolley into the next factory and there's a crushing plant and they're just crushing it. I said, where's this going? Oh, into the sheet. <laughs> and I went, yep, okay, so it's 100% recyclable, you know. So, yeah, from that moment on, I just became obsessed with it and, um, and have lobbied. I've met with Borel and CSR and trying to convince them to start making it here because obviously if it's manufactured here, that means that any offcuts can go back into the same to the same factory you know which would be brilliant um and it will happen but it's not happening far i really thought that that fire test would really shake csr and borrow and get wake them up but um yeah i've met with ceos and board members from both companies and i don't know don't know like i really don't know why in australia the most fire prone country on earth and flood prone you know, imagine having a mold resistant. Imagine if your house dries out and you don't have to replace any of those materials. Where are you getting yours from then when you order it for, for Future Food System and, you know, the other businesses I use, done? I called Rescon. So the fire test that I did, I used five different materials. Um, and I didn't tell any of the other five manufacturers that I was using competitive. Comp I wanted to prove that the product, and we bought the materials as well. So it wasn't like a sponsored thing there you know and one of the products was rescom and um steve was actually at the he was wearing the glass he was standing next to me his daughter won 
a sustainability award the day before. Oh, I remember them talking to you. Yeah. Sam. <laughs> he's he's he, you should interview him actually. He's a really he's been pioneering trying to get uh, um, the product approved in Australia and got it approved and he's he's basically spent 10 years and it's nearly killed him trying to get all of the trademarks and all of the approval processes and he's he's he, I love his material it's called rescom r e s c o m the factory is amazing he part owns the factory as well so um and rescom is sold in the uk and um uh canada and and the united states so they don't have a huge penetration in the united states because they manufacture uh, the same board in canada so america tends to be sold the the magnesium board from canada but yeah rescom you know and I, i've spoken to him at length about trying to get a factory here in australia okay yeah i'll have to get his contact details from you because it sounds really i think it's i've got homeowners are always looking alternatives to the conventional building materials that just seem to dominate the way that we build uh, homes in Australia, pretty much sticks and bricks. And so, you know, being able to introduce them to things like this, particularly around something that can be not only recyclable, but manage mould and, and moisture and those kinds of things in a building just sounds amazing. Yeah. And I know that there's a huge Australian company, privately owned company, and they sell plastering, plasterboard, um, highly respected 60 year long history they're taking over rescom in australia so you'll be able to buy it everywhere they'll have it in stock everywhere they'll give the full guarantee um constantly check the quality of the board uh, there's a, another product called fire crunch um they've got my video on their website my lawyers sent them a, an email saying take it off they, mm -hmm. they actually com sold compromised material in the past so again it's like it frustrates me that we've got such an amazing thing and these cowboys have destroyed its reputation. So, you know, it's it's really important that it come that companies like CSR and that get onto it so that we know and can have confidence in knowing that it's a good quality material that we can put into, you know, our homes. Yeah. You actually, with the um, floor structure, you used uh, the magnesium oxide board. You had the Dura panel as well. And then you did the concrete tiles, um, which you found from a particular company that actually sets the concrete on glass, I believe. So it got that amazing sheen on the finish of the floor. You had the underfloor heating and then you also grounded the floor. Can you talk through that as a concept and you know, how that, that whole sort of floor structure, because often when you're doing a suspended floor, the challenge is around getting thermal mass and about satisfying star ratings and those kinds of things. Just that floor structure was really fascinating. Yeah. So I use the heat pump for heating. So it's got the, the, um, Stable Eltron. Oh my God, I nearly forgot about those guys, but Stable Eltron make a unit that is both hot water for showers and hot water for, uh, hydronic heating. I've got a really clever little system that we used on top of the Jura panel. And then um, on top of that, we tiled. So we use magnesium oxide as a subfloor. It's a brilliant subfloor. And then the tile was made at my request by Concreters Collaborative, John Smithwick, another Australian. He sadly didn't make it into the film. But uh, an amazing concrete engineer that has worked for James Hardy and Concreters Collaborative, he actually moved to America to work for James Hardy took his kids with him and his four daughters are in California and New York running the business there now. Wow. It's huge in the United States and they make an amazing product. John went, moved back to Australia with his wife because he wanted to retire and he lives in Kyneton and he's got like a little shop there where he does all the R&D for the business in America. 
And so I asked him to make a 100% recycled tile. And so he worked with a glass recycling plant and um, the, even the cement dust was, came from recycled source. So it was a 100% recycled tile. And the pigments that he used were all natural Australian uh, pigments. And the reason why I wanted a concrete tile is because it's, it's obviously long-lasting, but it's really nice and cool. You can use reverse the system and run cool water through it in uh, summer so you can have a cool floor in summer and then obviously use it for heating in winter. Great conductor. And it's probably the least amount of energy that you need to heat your place. Plus, I wanted to do an earthing floor. And as far as I know, it's the world's first house designed to have a floor that's earthed or grounded. Um, and so I had nowhere to go to find out how to do this, right? So we had delayed the project by about two weeks because we tried to work out. I had a, a, a meter, electrical charge meter stuck to my fingers, walking around barefoot trying to see what works. But what was interesting is ultimately it was so ridiculously simple. We just got this um, stripped electrical cable from a recycler and laid you know, five mil copper cable before we grouted the tiles. Done. And it works brilliantly. So wherever you stand in that house, and then that copper wire is connected to a rod in the ground. And that's how it's earthed. So you've got no... Um, and the, the problem with earthing, if anyone that's interested in earthing and wanting to understand why it's going to really be... This is, this is going to become a massive thing. Even Nike is about to launch an earthing shoe. So wow. you're connected to the Earth's magnetic field. And when you're connected to the Earth's magnetic field, you can't have information. And so uh, a guy called Clint Obron in America, an electrical engineer, just wondered, and there's a great documentary called The Earthing Movie, made by Josh and Rebecca Tickell. Brian Tickell is a good family friend of ours here in, in Australia, and his kids live in California, and they made a documentary about it. It'll blow your mind. And so I sleep on a uh, mattress that's earthed on a blanket. It's got stainless steel wire through it and it's just plugged into the wall, into the earth. But yeah, I wanted to build a house that was always earthed. So we did that. And yeah, obviously concrete is a great conductor and um, that's why we did it that way. And it's all, how we did it is all, if you go into um, our Instagram future food system, you'll see that in highlights, the floor, how we've gone about doing that. And concrete is if they made the tiles in Australia for me and they still, they still you know, make beautiful tiles. What did you do on the upper floors? Um, did you do the same thing or did you do a different floor arrangement on the upper floors? Um, it's, it's going to be the same when it's built permanently, but we didn't because we didn't want to add that weight, you know, for when we move it. So we just actually painted, we just got a porter's paint and painted the, the magnesium oxide subfloor. Gotcha. Right. Um, oh, look, I could keep asking you questions all day, but I'm very conscious of the time. And I, I was wondering if we could just finish up by just talking before we jumped on, you talked about your attitude towards experimentation. Um, I read somewhere that your own house, you know, you're pulling part, things apart and putting things back together in your own home. Obviously homeowners, uh, particularly those who are thinking about their long-term forever in, you know, air commas, family home, um, not, don't necessarily have the same appetite for experimentation. How do you see the adoption of some of these ideas that I think a lot of people get nervous because they wonder if they're going to pick this thing, is it going to be different in five years time or 10 years time? Should they just stick with the status quo? Because at least that's been tested over decades. Just that ambition of wanting to do better and wanting to do something new 
but also worrying that they're an early adopter and it's a big investment. What would be your suggestions for just the mindset of approaching this differently so that you can actually create a home that has, you know, more, a better impact on the planet, on your own health and well-being, and is using materials differently to what the industry might be currently feeding them? Yeah, look, I understand that it's it's risky and, you know, it's cost us a lot of money over the years, experiments that have gone wrong and and things that have, you know, but that's just my approach and it drives my wife crazy because we could be very wealthy right now, but we're not. Um, we're, well, we're wealthy with, uh, you know, experimental knowledge and a brain full of, you know, what not to do. <laughs> but, you know, I... I keep it simple and go back to basics is my, you know, if, if something doesn't make sense in your gut, don't use it. Um, whether you're thinking about painting or, or making something, you know, you choose materials that, that weather and last and yeah, try and steer away from stuff that, you know, there's so many new things constantly coming out. Just question what's coming out. You know, is it sometimes going back to basics is the best approach. And a lot of people say, oh, I can't afford it. Well, maybe build something a little bit smaller and, you know, go smaller and do it well. And think about the sun. It's the most important thing on earth. And none of us spend enough time designing around the sun. When I built this house, I had bulb crates stacked up three meters high to emulate the ceiling height. And I was constantly moving them around different times of year. You know, we, I, I was working and planting the, the the farm here for three years before we built the house. So I had a long, you know, uh, that's 12 seasons before we actually built. And this house constantly changed because I wanted to make sure that in winter, the house was completely bathed in sun. You know, you could sit at lunchtime and be in the sun, even though it might be two degrees outside. And so sunlight is critical to our well-being. And vitamin D, whether you're getting sunlight, you know, when you see it with your eyes, it just changes your mood. It changes your outlook on life. And then, of course, in summer, you don't want the sun. You know, you want, to, you want a place that's cool. And, and so think about, you know, how to use eaves and, and make them, plant them with deciduous plants or something so you get lots of light coming through in, in, in winter. And I think that there's a lot that we can do just with what we have. And, yeah, just sunlight is critical. If you can think about sunlight, don't. Um, it's it's interesting. There's a lot of debate at the moment at the moment about you know sealing houses up, so and then using mechanical methods of you know exchanging air. I don't I don't agree that that is the best approach. I think a house needs to naturally breathe, and it's interesting that you know when we migrated from Holland, we came from these highly insulated homes. Sick building syndrome is still a thing there and was a big thing there. You know, obviously the energy costs in a place like Holland or Denmark or, you know, even colder countries is huge. So you need to highly insulate. It came here, we, it was like, is there any insulation in this house? It seems like the wind's coming straight through this house. But my mum pointed out that it's actually much healthier because, you know, you're getting fresh air. You know, there's no dead air, still air in, this, in, the, in the homes here. So, you know, obviously you want the best of both. You want to be able to ventilate your houses. And that's why, you know, my, my doors are floor to ceiling always. Um, if you look at my doors here, so I can get, you know, the, get rid of air at the top straight. 
So that door opens and the air just flows straight through. And, um, you know, this is into our bedroom. So I think it's really important from, you know, uh, if you could get a, like a, a, a fire going in your house uh, when you're building, let's say just with hay or something, get a little, and then you see the smoke and see what, where the smoke goes because that's where the air goes because we can't see it. So I think it's really important that airflow in a house, constantly get fresh air, you, um, you know, and it's much better for your well-being that your, that your house is filled with fresh air and, and, um, and that it's well ventilated and access to lots of sun. You can see here the, this is a courtyard again, like the external doors. If I open this door, the, the fresh air just comes, you know, straight in. And then I've got doors directly opposite. So once I open these two doors, you know, it just acts like this. Yeah, this, I, I, the, the airflow through this house is excellent, but that's designed that way. Yeah. I, I I think that it's just, and for anybody who's listening to the podcast, I'll pop that video on the website so that you can see Yost giving us a tour around his house because it's definitely worth checking out and um, seeing no, you, how those it, doors are. Yeah, curtains, you know, so I was doing flowers for Eddie and Carla Maguire and I was, uh, as a florist and Carla was explaining that a log fell out of the fire and within 60 seconds, a whole house was on fire. She was able to grab the kids and that was it. And I was like, started doing research. I hadn't even built this house yet. I was just designing it. It was just in my mind. So I started realizing that everything had synthetic, you know, you might have a natural carpet, but the underlay was plastic or, you know, the curtains. So this is just removalist felt that uh, made from raw wool. And so I got my local greenhouse. They make all the shade screens for the greenhouses and the fruit growers. They sewed these curtains together. Oh, my gosh. And yeah, so if there's a fire, they don't burn. You know, I don't, uh, the, the rugs here, this is a 120 year old rug that's been re-dyed by a friend of mine. Just natural wool. Here's a woolen rug. So, you know, I just have natural materials that don't burn, but they also then don't off gas. So, you know, it's really important that I think we, there's, there's some mushrooms. <laughs> some reclaimed Oregon. Um, Mark Tucky made this for, for us. And then, yeah, so there's just lots of natural, you know, we just um, use natural paints. There's just mostly porters. Um, yeah, you can see here, same with the kids' bedrooms. The doors go all the way to the ceiling. Um, we don't ever have slamming doors here because it's impossible. You just, uh... <laughs> there you go. That's fantastic. Oh, Yoast, um, thank you so much. I am so grateful for your time and for how generously you've shared. And I'm grateful for the work that you do in the world um, and the fact that you're even here just with such energy. Uh, it seems boundless. I'm sure it's not all the time. I'm sure that there are moments where you need to collapse in a heap and make sure that you do rest. And, and uh, I'm sure that there's um, some time like that ahead for you at the moment. You mentioned before we jumped on that you you uh, hurt your back <laughs> recently. <laughs> trying to ride your cow so <laughs> so yep. that's the same cow that's eating the strawberries on the bottom half of your house is it it sure is yeah <laughs> so yeah. so um 
So yes, I, I, I really encourage um, anyone listening to check out the Greenhouse documentary. It is a treasure trove of uh, information, knowledge and wisdom in how we can live differently and imagine a world without waste and imagine a house that can actually grow its own food. It's just extraordinary. So I'm so, so grateful for your time. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for going to so much effort to actually make this all happen because, yeah, we've had a few... Um, yeah, I, I apologize for not getting back to you the first time, but it's ultimately happened. It's all good. Thank you. Thanks for your great work. How was that? Uh, like, yeah, wow. I I hope that you you enjoyed it. I hope that it was really hard thinking of the questions I was going to ask Yoast. And like, frankly, I could have kept asking him questions for hours and hours and hours. There's so much that I wanted to unpack with him. Uh, He very generously gave me more time than I'd asked for in the first place. And so, um, you know, I really do hope that you found the conversation and you found Yoast and all that he has to share super interesting and helpful for your own project. You know, I really wanted to be able to extract information that I thought could be applied to any renovation or new build. And, you know, whether it's about how you're going to go about design, renovate or build, or it's your lifestyle that's happening in your home now, or that you might be able to create in your future home, how you might grow your own food or how you might manage your waste. You know, there's so many different ways that we can apply the ideas and the inspiration that Yoast demonstrates in his projects and does over and over again. And yes, I know it can be overwhelming. It can be incredibly inspirational and it can also be overwhelming. Those two things can coexist. I know that when I saw the Greenhouse documentary and I left just on a high thinking, oh my gosh, this is incredible. Like for us to be able to think about this and and see how we can bring this into the industry and into projects. And then it was like, oh, but where do I start? And what do I do first? And I need to find out this, this and this. And, you know, it was a lot. And you can see how much Yoast personally dives into his research and his discovery for his projects. And for many homeowners, that can feel, you know, too much and too hard. But it is worth remembering though, okay? I don't want you to throw out the baby with the bathwater. This isn't an all or nothing exercise. As Yoast said at the end, going back to basics is key. And then you can see what feels right, you know, and what else you might like to explore or adopt in your own project. Yoast is also someone who is in, he's clearly incredible at cultivating relationships and finding great people to collaborate with and delivering projects like this and like your own ambitious project you definitely need great like-minded people on your team and in your corner to help you bring those ambitions to reality so make sure you find a team that understands that and is on board with your ambitions as well. It was such a buzz to have this conversation with Yoast for the Get It Right podcast. As I said, I literally could have kept asking him so, so many more questions and I'm really excited to see what comes next in the work that he keeps doing to explore zero waste and demonstrating for us, all of us, uh, all of these sustainable design and building practices and ultimately helping improve the way that we live. Now, I've got whole heap of resources plus the PDF uh, downloadable transcript of this episode and that video walkthrough of his home. Uh, You can find all of that at undercoverarchitect.com forward slash 267. I will point you uh, to the Future Food Systems Instagram account. If you look at that uh, Instagram account and the link is in the resources, 
in the highlights uh, on the Instagram profile, they've done an incredible job of breaking down all of the stories that were shared on specific uh, subject matter. So there's one glass, steel, energy, and they've got, you know, they've tagged the companies that were involved and really outlined a lot of information in detail. So that it's a really great resource just looking through the highlights if you're looking for specific information in what was used in the Future Food System. So make sure you check out that's Future Food System's Instagram account. Now, as always, thank you for tuning in and for letting me be your secret ally. Until next time, bye.